every Saturday. What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Liv Falcon Falcon Screen, and we are joined by freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Hello, hello. And Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. <laughs> now, we have two films to cover this week. One in cinemas, one streaming. The new Charlie Kaufman film, I'm Thinking of Anything Things. On Netflix. On Netflix, yes. I Streaming. And, and we, we've all seen it, so we're talking about that. It's streaming now. And the new Laj Lily film, Les Miserables, not the Victor Hugo version, though it is referenced in the film, is in cinemas now, having premiered at the Sydney Film Festival, Melbourne National Film Festival, French Film Festival, so we'll be covering that. Yeah, it's actually, I'm pretty sure, sure the debut feature film of Lajali. Indeed. Yeah. It's had a good festival run, and now it's at cinemas. Worth catching. We'll talk about why a little bit later. Uh, some things that are happening about town. The Queer Screen Mardi Gras Film Festival started two days ago, and it's running until the 17th, all online. You can also catch the City Underground Film Festival, which is starting tomorrow night. It runs from the 10th through to the 20th. And there's Take 48, which is the film competition, which a lot of folks participated in. Um, a couple of people on this panel included. And they have a lot of the underground films that were typically screened here, but you can screen them from your bedroom or living room or wherever you watch them. We're doing a little bit of a screening thing on Friday night, so having a few faints over. Static Vision are having their latest screening upcoming on Friday night. The Geelong International Film Festival have gone online, so you can catch that from the 11th through to the 13th, so over the weekend. And finally, Kino Sydney are going to Kino 153, and that is on September 14th. You can get your flicks in. I think there'll be a few flicks that will have screened at Take 48. There's just some new stuff from upcoming Sydney filmmakers and filmmakers around the country. It's online, so if you have a flick, please send it in. Something else, a little bit of a tangent. I started the new, just a bit of a plug, I started the new platform this week with collaboration from local artists and galleries. It's called Art Out. And yeah, it's just a way if you aren't getting out of the house or are getting out of the house looking to find art, walk around the local neighborhood, find fixtures, whether it be street art, cafes, galleries, landmarks, they're all interactive tours. And yeah, I'm doing some work with the Chippendale Contemporary program this weekend. And yeah, just uh, if you have art that you see about that we haven't got, shoot us a message. Love to feature it. Love to feature your work if you're an artist. And yeah, it's just artout.live, which is the website, the Instagram, the Facebook, just all one thing, artout.live. And yeah, hopefully folks can have a bit of fun with it and discover some new arts. This means a pretty amazing stuff that's gone up amidst around the past few months. And pretty impressive. We have a pretty amazing Sydney art scene. And so we can be really proud of. Yeah, get your art out. Yeah. Now, moving on to film news, a quick tenet update. It seems that people are really caught on to the idea that this movie is quite imperceptible, not just in terms of plot, but in terms of sound design. It's very hard to understand. We touched on this in the last two weeks, honestly. That, like, this movie is, like all of Nolan's movies, impossible to understand at times. Whether or not they're wearing masks. But in 2020, and, and, a character wears a mask one, should not be a reason you can't hear what they're saying. It's yeah. more realistic. Okay, no. But it's the problem with the mix. mix. That was a straw man. Mix. But I think it's a mix, though, where even at some point, the actual surroundings, the surroundings are deliberately louder than the dialogue. You know, you had the sound of the water waves in the boat scene, which was much louder than the actual dialogue people were speaking on the boat. And I'm like, why no is this reason. happening? Yeah, why is this happening? It shouldn't be poor sound design and imperceptible sound design by design. I know once a film that you're supposed to come back to revisit and not supposed to get, it's supposed to be a sensory experience, but I should be able to follow along like in any given film. And that's a problem here. But the truth is Tenet is not that abstract. I know that what I'm about to say, many could disagree with, but Tenet is not some completely incomprehensible exercise in confusion. It's a 90s style blockbuster that has a few clever slash confusing elements thrown in. It shouldn't be impossible to understand the dialogue for large chunks of the film. Right? I think it's a deliberate ploy where Nolan's like, you know, uh, I'm not putting subtitles on this and you can't understand it. So it just makes it, you have to come back to basically watch it again so you can understand more of the dialogue next time. Well, there's a cinema in America, I think it was, that is now including subtitles on all screenings of the film. Yeah, I can see subtitles being on any number of streaming services being deployed for this. You should go back to watch a film because you like it, not because you don't understand it or because you can't understand it. The important distinction there. Take that, Chris Nolan. <laughs> so that's, that's our weekly tenant spot. 
moving on to the other big release of the week. It's doing well, apparently. Yeah, one fifty million worldwide. Not bad. Really not bad. Not bad. I mean, I'm not an. Ex- I don't know if anyone's an expert on cinema numbers amidst the pandemic, but it seems they have done. Well, it's new. Okay. It's there's not much to compare it to, but that's better than I expected. I predicted before it came out it would probably do about three hundred million ish total could do way more if it stays around for a long time, time. yeah it's, it's not going out of cinemas anytime soon they, they, they want it just to just hang out there the question is just is there more interest in it and there might be it could be a movie that people eventually get curious about because their friends keep talking about it it's gonna happen soon or is, is wonder time. woman the next big one in cinemas or or is, is it just the next bond is it october or december now that wonder woman's out it's october right in june and december so it's probably wonder woman then bond then june yeah bond have come out strong they've released a new trailer don't don't watch it there's it's fine but it's just a lot of information you don't need james bond's in it just he drives a car yeah, and bond, shoots bond's in things it. There's beautiful women at his this side, and he talks. He he does things intensely to them, and then action scene. That's the yeah. explosions. Yeah, lots of them. The other big release of this week is a film. Well, Milan. We've been talking about. It's like it. you're looking for like it was a film. It was, just Mil- it was Milan. That was just Milan. <laughs> I no great insight on this movie. We haven't seen it. I'm not paying forty three bucks to see. Milan. No, we, we said to see no, no time to die. I do not have the interest enough in that film, nor in providing a review to dear readers that I would pay forty three dollars to see it. I don't have. But even then, like in just generally for any film, I feel like no film is worth forty three bucks. No, Bond film I do like nothing no. else. Twenty five. There are forty three dollar tickets I would buy to like a one off IMAX screening designed to extract money from me. I might do it if it were like a new David Lynch film or something like that. But not Mulan. (laughs) (laughs) On my TV. No. I I haven't really seen any fallout. I think, yeah, on on my TV, that's that's the other problem. Yeah, Jesus. Anyway, Mulan. Yeah, the reviews have not been strong. Anyway, we'll cover it when it's more accessible. The reviews have been apologetic and polite. Yeah. It's like, if, if you don't like a movie, it's okay to say it's bad, guys. Do yeah. it, 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 it seems the response has been not as full-throated for the level of criticism it is. Yeah, I've been seeing a lot of people saying, this isn't to say these people are right or whatever. I don't know where I would stand, but I have seen a lot of how is this getting such good reviews. And it is a phenomenon that greets almost every big Disney movie, except for The Lion King. And when I'm including Marvel and Star Wars, the live action cartoon stuff, it always gets an inflated response when it's usually bad. Guys, it's okay to start giving big Disney releases bad reviews, as Glenn says. Start trashing the Marvel movies. They're all the same. Surely that's not good enough to get the same polite response every three months. I was like, yeah, I guess it's good. Anyway, that's just my opinion, man. So that's our Mulan coverage. We'll see it when... Will we? Will we? I think every, the whole world will collectively forget the movie exists by next week. I doubt anyone's going to care by the time I can afford to watch that movie. But, but isn't that what <laughs> Disney wants? So maybe us giving Mulan more attention will actually make it more uncomfortable for Disney. And isn't that what we all want? Hearing the narratives around how it's Chinese Communist Party propaganda, while simultaneously there's people complaining that they're messing up the cultural sensitivities, I reckon Disney were just thinking, as Virat said when we discussed it a few weeks ago, we're done with this film, just write it off. We would not have made this film now. Yeah. Get, it's become a liability. Get rid of it. So us talking about the film yeah. means that yeah, they have to be. acknowledge it. Counter to, to my plans. <laughs> yeah, it'd be like, ah, no. leading Disney now. Oh my God. I love when the Disney CEO <laughs> makes an appearance in these movies. Yeah. <laughs> like, like those. Scooby Watch it at home like, with all your friends. Yeah. Those, those meddling kids from the <laughs> Fight Club. Giving the film more attention than it means. <laughs> <laughs> they, they have all these amazing black cloaks at the Disney headquarters. Yeah. Ooh. It's exactly like Spectre. It's, 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 that's what that organization is essentially. No, Spectre. Oh, can you just imagine Spectre and the Spectre of the Sith Alliance? Christopher Waltz, Christoph Waltz, Inspector <laughs> really needed way more spider puppet armor, you know, weird machine <laughs> cyberpunk goth stuff happening. Can you imagine Bond fight again? Like, what would he do? Maybe he would have some gadgets to match a Palpatine spider monster. Chris Nolan would have directed and he would have had like time bullets or something so that he would have an upper hand. Yeah, I would watch that movie with great trepidation, but I would watch it. I wouldn't pay $43 for it, but I would watch it. I'm thinking of ending things. 
Yeah, I think you've anything. The first movie of the week, it is the new Charlie Kaufman film written and directed by Kaufman. It is starring Jesse Plenums, Jesse Barkley, Tony Collette, and David Thewlis. It is about a new couple who are traveling through the snow to his parents' house and their experience there and following. And like the film we discussed earlier in the episode, it addresses and plays with our conceptions of time. As a lot of films seem to be doing right about now, Bill and Ted's coming out, and which is apparently really good and also it's deals with time travel. It Look, it's in the zeitgeist right now. There have been so many films about alternate timelines. This film subverts that to some extent. But uh, this movie is a puzzle box mystery film. It's also an adaptation of a book that Virat is the sole member among the three musketeers here to have read. Yeah, but actually reading the book and watching the movie, it's just such disparate experiences that I think Kaufman has designed the movie in such a way that if you actually read the book, you'll be frustrated to no end because this is nothing like the book. It is actually the most Kaufman-esque But treatment. It's interesting. Okay, I haven't read the book, but I spoiled myself afterwards. I won't do that for, until we maybe get into spoilers later and give you plenty of warning in case you want to read the book. But what's interesting to me from what I can see is this is following the plot trajectory of the book in some ways, like the, the overarching yeah. narrative until the ending, but the treatment is completely different. The treatment is completely different. The overarching, the actual, what Glenn just stole in the synopsis, that is the book. Like a couple is traveling to a secluded farm to meet, you know, uh, the, the male partner's family. That Weird is what is in the book. Weird stuff yeah. happens when they get there. Weird but stuff happens on the way home. The treatment is weird stuff happens in the car is not the weird stuff that happens in the movie. In the film. That it's that weird stuff is totally different. And the, and the book by the sounds of it is very first person narration driven, whereas this is very much yeah. like you, there's a fair amount of first person narration here and it takes it, it draws you out of the film in a way that it's not supposed to because it doesn't inform you. It just is distracting. Yeah. and one, It's, it's it Kaufman's info dumps, which don't really work that well. I don't think it was just that. I think it was designed in the film um, to set up games with names and stuff like that. As I guess it is an info dump. It's there to drop in reference to, for the example, reference. character name. So later as the film goes on, you're like, oh, they mentioned the name, but it's slightly different. What's going on here? Ooh. In Did any of you find like, this movie scary? I don't find it scary in the slightest. I found at, at the beginning it's when it wasn't immediately be clear what was going on, it was a little bit eerie, but it becomes very obvious and apparent even in the first act. By that point, the mystery's gone, the puzzle box is gone. I didn't feel it returns a bit at the end, and I, I did like parts at the end, but I found a lack of momentum from the first act going to the second act. It's just became when it became very obvious, oh, I see what's happened here, I see what's transpired. And the awkward dynamic between the four of them is played out and expires. I just feel like, I know I mentioned David Lynch all the time, but it's, it's a comparison that's hard to avoid with this film. He's done this kind of thing a few times before, and it's always had some level of humanity and emotional engagement that is not in this film. Watching, it's so cerebral. That that's right. Like it just sucks it's, out any humanity and any emotional thing in his films. It's so it's clever, a, and it's so like does knowingly clever and designed to let you know how clever it is, and for you to admire how clever it is, and that creates a kind of cold, closed-offness. It's made me realize. I, I mean, I've said this before, but it made me realize that I probably didn't so much love Charlie. I did love Charlie Kaufman's work, but it's not just him who we were giving a lot of the praise to back in the day for stuff like being John Malkovich in adaptation. It makes you realize how important the directors were in those films. Yeah, he needs another director, whether Michelle Gondry or Jack yeah. Jones. Yeah. Be because without a, uh, a different director here, it has a lot of the things I didn't like about Synecdoche in New York. I could lay oh, through a lot of these things. Yes. Not as bad as that. It's definitely a step forward from that. But I could throw a lot of the same criticisms at this movie that I did at Snake in New York, which is it's so convinced of its own cleverness. It's so kind of chilly and cerebral and removed. And, uh, and it becomes self-serious. And it's like, I'm so depressed and I artist sort of tone. Uh, yeah. um, that it, it, it's weird so because, this film, because... just like it did that one. It's weird because the actual substance of this film is more like a family drama. So, you know, you would think that, you know, by extension, that this would allow you to be more emotionally centered and would have a more humanity just by design because the story is like that. But even- So next to New York had more humanity, probably. Yeah. That just brings 
a lot to that because Plenum's he he's really good. There's some hilarious scenes. It's some really dark material, particularly one involving a pig. Um, the parents, Glenn and Theolis, they're both great actors. Um, they nail a but, few of the sequences, but they have a lot of repetitive material to work with. Dude, the whole movie is so repetitive. The, the long car rides in this film are always way too long. The family dinner scenes are all too long. There's no reason this should have been two hours and 15 minutes. No. It's like I mean, people have Netflix. On Netflix, Netflix is like, yeah, sure, do whatever you want with the runtime. And Goffman's justification would probably be like this repetitive arc. It's setting you up for that kind of monotony and be like, oh, this is why this character is depressed because everything is repetitive. In his life, yeah. nothing new happens. So he yeah, thinks yeah. it's all clever, but it's not. It's actually trying the patience of the audience, but not in a good way. I, f- I feel like if this were a feature film released for cinemas, there'd be a producer somewhere saying, no, no, one hour, 55 minutes, cut 20 minutes. You could Hopefully cut, not Harvey Weinstein. You could have cut half an hour. saying cut 20 minutes. Hopefully there'd be <laughs> someone sensible. Sometimes that's legitimate um, Sometimes it's criticism, legitimate. Chris. Usually it's not legitimate in the case of when Harvey Weinstein said it. But in this case, when have hopefully more. Harvey Weinstein would not be involved. he w- Actually, he would never be involved in this. I'll give kudos to Netflix for funding this 100% uncommercial art film. Letting Kaufman do his stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't think it works, road. but like... It's so uncommercial. The only thing commercial about it is the brand, if it even exists, um, beyond like a select few cinephiles of Charlie Kaufman and but, Tony But Ford, the actors, yeah, Tony Clare. That's Glenn. it. Other than that, nothing commercial. But then he had a, but then he still had to be reined in a bit. I mean, the thing that annoyed me most about this movie, and it's something I mentioned when we discussed Marriage Story, and Kaufman's done this sort of thing in these films before he wants to talk about the movie industry and be reflexive and he has all these little tidbits and bits he throws in to talk about reviewing and film and it is entirely biographical autobiographical for himself in the industry it's not relevant why is it here yes you're one of the youtube platforms talk about this but i don't care this is a family drama why are we talking about it's not a family drama it's i mean it's it tricked you into thinking a family drama when really it was all about me kaufman all along (laughs) (laughs) again but 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 this actually touches on the, the central critique of the film for me though about like it's too cerebral but as right before we started recording Yeah, how it's kind of in some dumb ways. Like Virat was saying, I don't believe that this character that this movie's building up would be referencing some of these pop cultural things, like Colin Kale's review of the influence. That is too like which we we can get into this in spoiler discussion. Anyway, yeah, yeah. But there's a brownstone in New York where a bunch of very wealthy people who've been very successful in creative industry are sitting. And just watching the film, you're like, oh, yes, um, I'm glad that this has been acknowledged. Very good, very good. Uh, next reference, uh, please. Yeah, but the th- that's true. <laughs> the other thing about this, but the reason why I say that's so cerebral is how does this sound to you? Because this is what I think Nolan is, Nolan, they're both too, <laughs> too convinced of their own cleverness. Why are we doing all this um, Tell me if you think this is what Kaufman's doing. It's, I am going to show how I can recontextualize snippets from a bunch of other works across pop culture in order to paint my portrait of these characters. But that in itself is a kind of cold exercise. Reusing other people's words. You know, it, it's, it's a look yeah, at it, me, it, look at how clever I am to be able to reconfigure these aspects of different works into this narrative. It doesn't it's, have like, to be. It's distractingly, like- showingly clever. It doesn't have to be. I mean, Tarantino does that all the time. But, but not, not, not as directly as Tarantino yeah. wouldn't be like, we're going to take a chunk of this song from a musical. We're going to use this speech from a movie and this film review and just drop them in the movie. Yeah, I think Tarantino the does problem... uses homage in a more yeah. kind of open way, I think. I agree. intention to more your unthought about things sure yeah. I, I think, but this Kaufman, this was Kaufman, shouldn't have been more obscure though this is about yeah. as obscure as this could possibly be if not too much for I, what I it the, is yeah the problem with Kaufman is he just stops he just thinks referencing something is enough and that mm-hmm. rather than doing something with that reference it's not it's not recontextualizing it in your own way it's just mm-hmm. literally name, name dropping it would what would we call like, you know if you're having an artsy fartsy high class, upper class dinner and you're name dropping a bunch of references. This is what Kaufman kind of feels like sometimes. It's like, oh, and, look at me, I'm and, fancy and, and, and I'm, and, I'm and, dropping you know, stuff you know, from the art world. And we can like sometimes be those people ourselves, like, like in all fairness. But I agree, having, yeah. Th- having said that, we don't want to watch a film 
about that. We want when, to make a film that's more introspective. We don't want to. We don't want film to be that. It's one thing for criticism to be that. I wouldn't say that film can't be that. But for me, this movie's halfway in between its ambitions as entertainment slash a subversion of the thriller and its cleverness, its pop culture quoting, and they're not meeting at, at the right intersection to, to be engaging or informative or illuminating about the characters and the world of the movie. It's just a distracting exterior element that's been grafted on. I mean, compared to the adaptation, right, which is trying yeah. to deal with a lot of the similar issues about trying to critique pop culture and criticism and see what pop culture does with it while still mm. trying to be a tw- an engaging thriller, technically. Adaptation does it a lot better. Oh, Adaptation is, is the best Charlie Kaufman written film. But I think, I think so too. now, given, given could... the subtext, we now know the direction matters so much more. Because we, we, but also, this also does similar things to Eternal Sunshine. The spin's yeah. different, but there's similar concepts at play, for sure. But that movie much, has just so much more much humanity. Better film. Much better. We haven't actually even touched on probably the biggest gripe with this movie, and it's a reflection of a lot of New York types style of the 70s and through filmmaking, and also early era post-silent filmmaking, where a lot of the people who wrote screenplays came out of the theatre scene. I was about to say that. Dude, I was about to say, doesn't this make you think Charlie Kaufman should just be sticking to playwriting at the moment? It's so play-like. It's not just that it's so play-like. There is nothing, nothing about this film, about the screenplay, that couldn't and better exist on a staged setting. It's a few characters, it's minimal locations, and this brings us to the end of the film, which we won't spoil. Maybe we will later. Maybe we will later. I liked elements of the final scene, particularly the penultimate scene, where they go into a more theatrical, abstract element. There are dance elements involved here. And symbolism, it's beautiful. Dude. I wish that style had been either committed to throughout the film. It comes up as this little tangent. I liked it, even though it was jarring. But at that point, the movie's feeling kind of desperate. I don't think he has the kind of like master artist flourish touch to bend the form. In, instead, it kind of feels like throwing everything at the wall by this point. And you know, Synecdoche in New York also came down to this very theatrical construct that would have been, though, yeah, maybe impossible to stage on stage interesting to be touching, alluding towards and building towards on stage. He should be doing that. Apparently, uh, I'm Anomalisa. The only one of his recent things I haven't watched. So uh, forgive me if it's actually a beautiful humanist film, like a lot of people say, and has a heart to it. But yeah, that started on the stage as well, apparently. Maybe that's, that's yeah. where he should be right now. It's okay to film a play or experiment more concretely with the form. He could have filmed this as a predominantly stage production. It yeah. would have been fine. It would have better begotten the meta aspects of it, which he clearly wanted to get across. Yeah. And But veering to it so strongly just to the third act, more of that sort of effort could have been resplendent throughout the first and, first and second acts, which just weren't as good. Yeah. Ultimately, I kind of feel like this movie is Kaufman trying to show how above a popular, accessible mainstream genre type film he is. And like, here's my bloodless version that subverts all the parts that are like entertaining. I mean, he's referencing David Foster Wallace in there. So, I mean, it's, it, he thinks he's he, the next, he's the next so DFW. <laughs> yeah. I will really say bad. the movie within Nothing the like movie Wallace. early in this is gold. There's some, yeah. there's all, there's funny stuff throughout this movie. That in particular is really funny. But that that is um, like right out of Infinite Jeff. That's right out of David Foster Wallace. He's just literally trying to be the next year. He's yeah. He's saying like, he is a David Foster Wallace esque. Some of the we can discuss mate, later in the film some of the ways he yeah. in the film later in this film <laughs> film Fight Club on the 9th of the new September 2020. <laughs> yes. Um, d- yeah, 21 years since the Sega Dreamcast in America represent Sonic Team. Anyway, <laughs> um, uh, no, that's yeah. a very Charlie Kaufman reference right there. This show, it's it's, it's, it's too there. geeky for Charlie Kaufman. But uh, did you find Tony Collette uh, like? Yeah, she's good. But at the end of the day, the cut really cartoony mannered performance. Everyone's very cartoony. Like, the whole family is it's trying to be cartoony because it was almost it's just grading as John David Washington in Tenet. Right. Uh, <laughs> I would, I would just like to see a Tony Collette film yeah. where she isn't seated at a dinner table trying to be eerie. For, yeah, I know. It was too, too similar to Hereditary too soon. Like, is that what you're going to do now? But for the record, um, should I explain my references about the, the greater? John David Washington uses the greater pretty well in Tenet. Yes, he know. does. And it, it was actually one of the few moments, the very raw moments where, oh, I felt that punch. Yeah. 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 
so yeah, so we only have a few minutes left. We're going to touch briefly on Les Miserables, and then talk in much more detail on the podcast about it. We'll also yeah. have a little bit of spoiler discussion of that film, and I'm thinking of anything on the podcast. It premiered at the Sydney Film Festival, went on to the Melbourne International Film Festival, the Orleans Francais Film Festival, and it's now screening at Palace and Denny. It is about a community... And the Ritz. And the Ritz. It is at a community in France, and appeared in their life it is Chris? it's it's set in the town set in is, the town where victor hugo wrote the novel hence, les miserables yes hence the title also yes, is, which is called montfermeil and it is about the interactions between the police officers um, a special unit of police um a number of young people a number of local residents and tension and and visitors to the town and tensions over a period on in the middle of the summer as is increasingly reminded it's very hot and people are very frustrated and there is a lot of tension built in this community, which is very divided and of a, predominantly of a low socioeconomic status. It's about the sense that the police are persecuting the lower class citizens in this film, thus the title. And it introduces the racial elements of modern France to the, I, I guess, Le Miserable in that way. It's a different narrative, but it's very pointed in giving itself that title. And I guess I really, I really like this movie. I thought it was really good. Me too. Um, the characters, all of them, are exceptionally well drawn. There's a number, but none too many. And while we're talking about this film very serious, I mean, this is a very serious film, there's a lot of strange humor running through it, including um, one of the bases of the original tension, which is finding a, can we say, what, the, what they're trying to find? Yeah, all right. It t- it's a, this comes about a third of the way through the film. So if you don't want to hear us say this, skip ahead 30 seconds. But yeah, they're, they're trying to find an animal which you wouldn't expect to see in the middle of France. And that leads to... It's a, it's a nice, interesting, surreal aspect to throw into the middle of the film. Which comes back full circle later. It does. Um, in a very, very good scene. Mm. So, what a clever script. Yeah. Yeah. Very clever script all throughout, except for the final moments of the film. I actually thought the, I mean, we can get to this in spoilers if you like, but I actually thought the very last image was really good. I disagree. No, I loved it. I I feel like it's not believable necessarily, but it works on the grand operatic level that this film is aspiring towards. We find ourselves in this town well, we have an audience identification figure. It's this cop who's new on the scene. Pretty standard narrative device, but it works because you have the three of them and they all have very different motivations and have very different moral outlooks and experiences of this world. One is new to it, one is from it, and one has a bit of a, quite an antagonistic approach to it. And it's great it's, that they contrast. I was going to say it's definitely formula in the way that it uses these three characters and the contrast between them, but it's really well executed version of formula for a loud issue based drama coming straight for the Oscars type film. It totally makes sense why they submitted this movie. That's about racism and serious issues as opposed to portrait of a lady on fire, which if anything, too subtle for the Oscar (laughs) audience, but um, for that kind of thing, compare this. I mean, it's, it's low hanging fruit to compare it to crash. I guess. Um, but there's but still a, it's still a there's much still, better nuance. foreign language. Yeah. Yeah. For a loud issue movie that's built, built to formula, it allows for way more nuance and gestures towards recognizable human motivations and emotions than these sort of films usually have. The, given that it's a debut film as well, I'm very impressed by it. Like, yeah. The, the well, control, the, it's based on a film. There was a 30 minute version of this, uh, which I haven't seen, but was apparently very good that he got the funding based on. Oh, so it's like a spec. spec yeah, that's right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, spec short. So that is Les Miserables in cinemas now. We'll be talking more in details of the podcast. Actually, I was very much in the portrait of a lady kind of brigade because this. But like, let's just—they don't, the don't have to be compared. Pick. They don't have to be compared at all. For the official pick, but like now after rewatching yeah, it, I've gone back to it. Stuff. It's a good know, movie. They're both very it's good. A really movies. good movie. Yeah, yeah. I'll talk about yeah. it on the podcast. I yeah, think, sweet. <laughs> I think many things are streaming on Netflix. The Sydney Underground Film Festival stream from tomorrow night. Queer Screen is on now. The Geelong International Film Festival is on. Kino Sydney is screening on Monday night. And if you want to check out Art Around Sydney, artout.live on website, Instagram, Facebook. Hit us up. Um, we're, we're doing a sub screening on Friday night. You should be doing too. It's going to be a lot of fun. Get your friends together. And if you, yeah, if you want to go see one in the cinema, I will say now that, uh, yeah, go see Tenet. It's fun. But, if you want to see something better than Tenet, go say, see Les Mis, right? It's, much, like, it's, it's definitely a, a stronger film than Tenet, right? We all agree that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. oh, yeah. Have a wonderful night. Or when you're listening, enjoy your movies. 
has been Chris Evans, Glenn Falcons, Glenn Verrat, Nehru. Good Stay safe. Good night. I watched Big Trouble in Little China last night at the Ritz. That was fun. Whoa. What was the name? Was it, he was always saying, Ming, these people, what are they doing? What's happening? What's uh, the, you, you, Les Mis or Big no, Trouble? No, in Big Trouble. The oh, no, it, no isn't he, he's always saying, what Jack Bergen always says is, what the hell? Or something like that. That was a terrible impression. Not nowhere near as good as Kurt Russell's John Wayne impression. Actually, that would be fantastic. Yeah, that movie's so good. Anyway, it's so great that it's so bad it's good. People mistook it for a long time for a movie that's so bad it's good, but they 100% knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Big trouble, right? Yeah, it's great. Amazing. Anyway, right. let's roll. Welcome back to Film Fight Club, where we're discussing the 2012 Tom Hooper film, Les Miserables, which wasn't good at all. When, we're not discussing that. I'm sorry. We I'm sorry, Glenn. I'm, I'm vetoing this idea. We're vetoing that. Damn it. Damn it. I just want to talk about Tom Hooper. No, we're talking about a much better adaptation of Les Mis. We're talking about a much better film. Cats. Was it Cats at the Ritz on Friday? Yeah, uh, I didn't make it, but uh, it would have been interesting. It would have been inter- Cats, inter- it's, it's, interesting. It's reached its rookie horror moment, apparently. Or I feel like we're the only three people in the universe right now who are talking about Cats. I feel like uh, not. No, no, Barat. There's the internet and Twitter, and it's totally happening. No. Let's talk about something better. Liam is Rob. Yeah, like I said, at the Ritz, they played Big Trouble in Little China last night. That's better than Cats. It's a lot better. It's really good. It's great. It's a great film, which they're remaking. I don't think it'll happen. Yeah. So I loved how because the two cops who he meets could have just been any any standard rough cops, but they have such different approaches. One says we act like this because we have to, and another says no, we are this or we become this. And I yeah. love that approach, the conflicting approach to this world. I liked how it articulated different policy approaches to the policing. I think it did a good job of showing how people could have wrongheaded ideas but sincerely believe them because that's just the environment. Like the the tension towards the end of the. Film with the device of the new guy becomes like we should do things the right way and it's like no this is the way things always have been you just don't understand because you're not part of our world yet but you can see how closed that perspective is about like don't question fall into line you'll see that this works but that doesn't necessarily mean that this is a good status quo or that it's worth perpetuating and i felt like yeah this was really well drawn out Importantly, that that it's not just the respect of the police officers. There's a they show the relationship between members of the community, some former criminal elements of the community, younger members, and also the police officers. And it seems, at least among some of them, to be this collective drive to not necessarily get things better, but not have things get worse, to maintain a status quo. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of tension because a lot of them have different approaches of how to do this when a particularly inflammatory thing happens, which could lead, as they all perceive, to a breakdown of all. Order, a very general breakdown of order in this community, which is they're trying to, they reference directly the events of 2005, and it's clearly an environment and mule they're trying to evoke here. Yeah. What a satisfying script as well. Just the way that all of the plot threads in this kind of multi-strand drama, we're following the, you know, these main cop leads, but it's showing you the broader with these drone shots, which are worked into the narrative because I think largely realizes how drones risk becoming a bit of a cliche these days, but he's used it in an interesting way and woven it into the narrative. So it's not just, oh, here's the obligatory drone shot. But yeah, these drone overarching um, shots are used really well for like the transition, you know, like this is an episode of this Lord's Eye View cop drama where it's like, okay, we're following the cop leads now, but let's see what's happening over here and let's see where this thread of the narrative is going. All those- That would happen. I believe there'd be, I I see drones- Anywhere running around. Yeah, this it's true. It was, it was believable. The way that the threads of the script come together is very satisfying. I also thought for this kind of loud issue drama, um, I keep using that phrase, but it had a very good handle on the pacing and the tone. The way that it but the thing is, beyond, beyond, and build up in intensity. It's so entertaining with that huge things happening. It builds that there's enough like something crazy almost happens moments that hook you in. Very um, and, Yeah, but it pulls the big punch. It trusts that it has its hooks into you enough that it doesn't need to 
go too unrealistic too soon. It builds an intensity very, very well paced. I, I think beyond a certain point, and I think that's what uh, really got me on the rewatch as well, is the fact that it stops being an issue drama. I think I just enjoyed the film for what it was and stopped thinking about it like an issue-based film. Well, Even though well, the yeah, issue is that's... there, and which is kind of why it's a good film, I think. It, it's... Yeah, it's not just a condescending movie about... On, on, you know, showing how do good how do gooder opinions. You know, it's also I mean, trying and succeeding at being an entertaining cop movie, right? Yeah, I mean, let's contrast this. I mean, controversially, with if we're talking about an issue-based film, something like Black Clansman, which I didn't like because its issueness was actually too front on the nose, and it took away from the the enjoyment exactly. of the film. Yeah, yeah. But here, I think it's a good comparison point because this film is dealing with a lot of the similar racial elements, but it never stops. That never overpowers the, the cinematic experience of the film. And yeah. you still enjoy this as a film. So I think that was... I, I think there's a very specific reason for that and why it works. And it's that in a lot of Marvel films and a lot of less well-produced scripted films, and certainly in, in a film like Black Panther, the characters, we learn of the characters as they go through learning arcs. And they're confronted with issues and discussions they had. But here they're confronted, as are we, with a circumstance that we're not essentially ready for, that we don't see coming, that through pure narrative function, as opposed to, there's scenes where they debate and discuss, is this the best approach? But ultimately, the learning curve and the moral of the film comes from a confrontational episode, which is realistic, and which, while it is philosophically based, is very dramatically rooted in, this is what I believe this could transpire, and such a cautionary tale. And we'll get into a little more detail when it comes to the end, but the final 20 minutes of the film, it's so great. Oh, absolutely. I loved it. I will say about something earlier on that we can talk about right now. The low point of the film for me is the scene where the characters explain the title. There's a scene, Uh, I I thought that the point of like, all they needed to say was, we're in Montfermeil, Victor Hugo wrote Les Miserables here, isn't that interesting? They do say that, that in itself would have been pushing it, that's about Uh as far as you can take it. And and there's a quotation of the book used in this film, that's interesting too, but there's a scene where the characters actually discuss like, hey, not much has changed here, Cosette now would be... Yeah, who's that? You know, and they draw the direct analogy between the people in this narrative. But it's dumb because, first of all, it's too distractingly. Here's why it's called that. Hey, isn't this interesting, audience? Two, uh, it's the the dumbest, least introspective character making this point, which maybe explains the next problem I have with it a little bit. But I don't buy it. Oh no, um, which I, is I, like I, I don't know, a guy based in the town would have been intimately familiar with the novel. But I do too. But the way he's. Yeah, and he also is making directly making the comparison. It's like, do you not realize who this makes you in the narrative, man? It's like he. I know he's dumb, but it's a, it broke from his character and his character's perspective too much to make him the guy who explains the connection. Like, I don't think this guy is smart enough, or like is smart enough to make that connection while being dumb enough to not be like, oh, am I Javier? Like to not be like, oh, so I'm Javier. Oh, no one likes that guy. The worst moment in the film was when, in the diner, when a character does something which is entirely inconsistent with how we've established his character would act. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that it's the worst moment in the film, but it, I did have some difficulty accepting some of the character choices towards it's the very, end. It's a very movie moment. It's Yeah. Yeah. It just didn't need to be there. I feel still this was like we're nitpicking at this point. The the majority of the experience of the film was still very enjoyable. This is this is still a, a much much better film than anything we've seen in cinemas so far. In a while, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I think before we go into spoilers, I'll just note one other thing. It unless you watched Big Trouble in Little China last night and Nights of Kiberia and and uh, Salam Cinema and The Grand Illusion. Okay, week, yeah. Which case. Salam Cinema <laughs> is fantastic. <laughs> okay, yeah. That's, all right, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of great stuff in cinemas right now because they're just, because all these cinema owners are like, wait a minute, we can actually play these really good films we've loved our whole lives? Do yeah, it. Exactly. But uh, actually, yeah, the Salam Cinema is a good comparison point to get back to I'm thinking of ending things because it's all about referencing cinema and what is people... But the Iranian to. meta cinema game stuff is always <laughs> just so much more humane. Exactly. And I was just like, you know, you can do this in a much more humane way. It doesn't have to be just a repo. Before we roll into spoilers, can I throw in one more little shot at yeah. thinking of ending things? Yeah. I thought it was so ugly visually. Like, it's trying it's to look pretty, but it's hideous. It has this really, like, ghostly pallor. I'm sure it's an aesthetic decision. They knew what they were trying to go for, 
but yeah, I just found horror. the colors not good. Like Park Chan Wook would use a similar kind of autumn colors, wash like sickly, ghostly color scheme, but do it in an interesting way, do it in a nice. beautiful way. This was ugly. And it's also because a lot of this film, going to what Glenn was saying about how it could have been a play, a lot of it is just set just inside a car, but that means it's a distractingly digital fake looking movie. It's because the snowstorms are too expensive for this budget. So it's all just like green screen CG stuff. And it's after a while, it's just like this gross plastic looking movie. Did you find not, that? Not just that. This, particularly inside the school, they borrow directly some of the broad imagery that has resonated from Eternal Sunshine of the Spot this morning. They do, hey. It's very clearly meant to see. You loved this movie. It's this, this brilliant film, which is the favorite of many A lot of Charlie Cuppen fans. Deservedly. And you should also like this. It's yeah. Far um, so basically, I watched Slim is weeks ago, and I watched I'm Thinking of Any Things like yesterday. So one is more fresh in my mind. I actually watched Slay Moves more recently, but I did watch Vegan Ending Things on the weekend. Can I just, before we get into sports, can I comment on one thing on Slay Moves? It's just simply that there's this ominous feeling and things don't play out. Well, they do play out often as you expect they will. It doesn't happen with the pacing or order that you would, would typically expect. Therefore, it still maintains suspense and intrigue quite well, to its credit. I agree. Spoiler time for Les Mis. And after that, we'll have some spoiler time on I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Skip ahead 11 minutes if you want to hear that. So now that we're in spoiler territory for everything, you've been warned. Having a lion cub as the MacGuffin of the movie, you must find this lion amidst these mean streets of France. It was awesome. Best random said, animal since the baboon in Ad Astra. Agreed. As, and it led to that amazing <laughs> lion sequence in the lion taming pen later in the film. Yeah, great right. As well as the payoff of the Muslim perspective on the lion. I liked how the lead in this was so out of his depth. How he like he's a good guy, but he's very not wise. Not just in yeah. terms of like you need to learn to be a dickhead policeman. The, but even but even then, the I think that helped make the broader point that even sometimes good intentions aren't enough. That That's just right. being yeah. a good person is like, you have to learn about culture. You have to be really open to learning. It's not just yeah. having his character was open to learning, but he yeah. but maybe he's realizing too late that he's like part of this terrible police unit. I also really yeah. liked the nuance between the three members, the different shades, how sometimes even the biggest, baddest, worst guy in it, who isn't the one who creates the biggest conflict, interestingly, yes. it would have been, it would have it been, been way tries too... to neutralize it most strongly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he tries, he's willing to cross the most lines in trying to neutralize it, which I thought was interesting. It would have been too, way too satanic a character if they had also piled the responsibility. Uh, but his for, thing yeah. was all we have to back up the team. We all have to have each other's back. That was his Which motivating arc. Which is how cops fine. are a lot of the time. Yeah. A lot of the time. But I, th I think that really helped make the movie, well, seem more real in the sense that, because, you know, <coughs> we, we are in this world where kind of this narrative has been taken towards that, you know, cops are evil kind of thing. But sometimes that is not the real kind of target. It's the fact that the system really molds you in a certain way and then you start thinking in a certain way and so really its targets are quite precise it, it's trying to make a broader point about you know it's not about the cops it's about the system so anyway yeah there were three nuanced characters that felt like individual personalities and had very strong performances that were very different from each other behind them yeah and i would say the same for sala <laughs> the restaurant owner the guy who was always in the front row at the office. I'd say the same for the two main children we meet in addition to some of the others. And on that, the scene where the main cop reach with Stala and talks outside his cafe and tries to negotiate with him and say, no, we need to do this. This is important for us. Um, amazing character moments. But it brought it back to um, talking about the Muslim perspective on this animal, this issue. There's a great scene earlier where so I was explaining to him, but this animal has this importance in our religion. And the way that movies predispose you to think about movies is that, oh, he's hiding something. And obviously he wasn't. And it was just him telling the cop, no, this is important. You clearly, you and the audience clearly don't, probably don't understand the significance of this. And this is something you're going to have to come to terms with. And the film has a lot of amazing moments like this. And it's also um, him speaking metaphorically about the situation in front of him saying like, maybe this is something you can't control or shouldn't try to control, like know your place. And, and this is bigger he, than you. He knew what was going to happen coming into the film. He saw it coming. He tried to stop it, but 
So yeah, that's right. What did you think about the the kind of I'm the youth leader? I you know I run this building guy getting absolutely trashed by the rioting mob in the last stretches. I bought it. I did too. It it's sort of it's kind of like when people are angry with authority, they're going to take down everyone. It, it becomes indiscriminate when there's an angry mob with that much force behind it. Yeah, that crushing point. Like of- you were part of this system that allowed this to happen, so you're out the door. Yeah. Revolution. And that cost you tale of. Because they were just dismissed. It was always just, even when after the kid had been shot in the face, it was, this is your fault. He'd been traumatized. Lion pain. I mean, he did something wrong by taking the lion, but the way it was dealt with, my God. Yeah. And it's, and it's to the youth leaders, the religious leaders, it, yeah, it's in some ways, it's a shame that the guy who gives the lion speech didn't, didn't get a kicking instead of the guy who runs the apartment because he is more responsible for the upholding of the status quo ultimately. He is the one who, even though he's trying to avert a disaster, made the decision, um, let's keep sweep this thing under the rug to try and keep order. When the people are like, no, we want retribution. They did this to, to one of our own. Mm-hmm. I thought the, the scenario of the ending was very interesting. And it, but but even then, I think that still felt believable in the sense that Sometimes the people who actually should get retribution do not because, you know, when, oh, yeah, that, yeah. Kind, when that kind exactly. of mob does arrive, you know, it, it's not, you're not doing hierarchies and you're not actually trying to slot like this guy deserves. No, it's just anything that gets in the way. Yeah. So it was an yeah. icon and it was the people around him. And yeah, he had that anger. It was very immediate and there was some very short fall for it, but, and they, did it. And that building obviously is a microcosm of what this film is most in part about uprisings and disorder and disenfranchisement, um, reflective of as is stated in 2005 and yeah, like movements around the world. Two things on that ending one, given how unrealistic in some ways the scenario is, it's amazing how much the film gets you to buy into it. Two, what an awesome way of riding a riot with a low budget, yeah. There's I think the, the reason why it, I think, opens with the big scenes of the crowds in France is it's kind of like, picture this imagery. This is what we wanted. Here's what we could do. <laughs> you know. Yeah, but it's just that I remember the euphoria when France won the World Cup. Um, I was surrounded by. I was in the Middle East, so I was surrounded by a lot of very happy French folk. And it's a moment that was emblematic of what was happening throughout the world. But no, around the corner, this is still happening. It's great that Mbappe scored multiple times, but. It doesn't fix everything. It, 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 it's a distraction for just the shortest bit. And the sequence where it gradually just going down and down the stairwell, it's terrifying. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I feel it feels claustrophobic. Visually great. Oh, Some really good documentary style, intense handheld camera type filmmaking here. And really aware of the environment. Like, I always knew where yeah. I was and Me what too. the were and how and if and when people could get out of there. So why did you not like the ending? I have a, to be clear, if you haven't seen the film, the final scene of the film is the boy who was shot in the face and who led, in the broadest sense, this uprising, facing off with an incendiary device against the cop who it's his first week on the force. Going up against all of them and the biggest dickhead of them all is bleeding out from the eye. It's the rough scene and the new guy on the force is pleading to him and the kid is kind of, he has a cold face, but it's this moment of decision where you can tell that he's really deciding what to do. He has these guys' life in his hands and it ends on that. It's a very lay miserable type image. So the transition from that to a Victor Hugo type thing I thought was great. Right. Yeah. And the audience identification figure we referred to earlier has a gun trained on the kid. Importantly, I refer to him as the audience identification figure, but he's not the only one. The kid who... No, but he's the so central one. By. He's the central one. Yeah. And both of them have this confrontation at the end of the film, which is great because it forces us to confront, oh, how, how do we see ourselves in these characters? Who do we most identify with? Who do we... Who do we how how do we want it to do? What's the right thing to do? I mean, obviously we know the right thing, but you it wants you to empathize enough with, with the character that you can understand why he might do the not right thing. And it works. Because yeah. there's, there's, there's many times throughout the film where we're caused to see from the perspective of a character we probably won't agree with, and it works really well, but why I didn't like the end. So I have a very typical aversion to non-endings. The way it ends is that they have the gun, they have the devices, the gun and the incendiary device trains in each other, and then it zooms into the kid's face. We don't actually see how the standoff ends and we have what is in effect a non-ending i understand it's meant to drive the point home that this is interminable this is non-ending 
but I think the points that the film raises about congregation of circumstances, about congregation of tension, could have been much better handled with a finite resolution. Either, sadly, one or both of them shooting each other or not, that could have made the point just as well. And it also jars with a film that doesn't otherwise shy away from very dramatically violent moments to make the point, including the very sad scene where the kid is shot in the face and later confronted with the lion. Personally, I loved the way the ending worked. Open endings can seem like a couple out to me. There have been a lot of recent art films where I've thought this is just lack of courage to pick a way to end the film. But here, this is the way that I've, uh, I prefer open endings like this, which is where you end on a high point of tension. For me, I just thought like it's a moment that encapsulates the energies of the narrative. So I was okay with it ending there. I didn't feel like I had to knew what happened. I thought that final moment was like interesting in its tensions and its dynamics and the way that it could go either way. And I felt like that spoke to something about what this narrative was about in terms of the, like the state of France, like how it could go either yeah. way, that makes sense. Well, I agree, I agree. And I think Chris, you've hit the nail on the head because I feel like today we are at the precipice, right? We could go either way in terms of like, not contemporary France, I think in terms of a lot of world order could go either way in terms of where we are heading. So we are mm. at that kind of crossroads and it's leaving it to the audience to decide which way do you want to go? You know, we can still back down if we want to, but mm. you can go, you can go but ahead we, if we're you at want the to edge. as well. We're at the yeah. edge. So I think giving a solution would take away from that introspective moment that the film wants to leave the audience with, which is like, this is not just about France. It's not just about this one town. This is about you as well. Where do you yeah, want to yeah. go? You know, do you want to go and take this choice or do you want to go and back down? So I guess that really was a powerful, powerful moment. And it was handled quite subtly. So for that for that sense, I was just like, you know, it's not throwing me in the face. And the Black Klansman comparisons just keep coming back. Anyway, but it's just like, you know, this is a film, it, it knows what it's doing, which I felt was so satisfying. Very assured film. I felt it knew what it was doing, except for this moment, which I'll come back to in a sec, and the scene in the diner where he gives the guy the memory card. I don't know why he would do that. It wasn't I think clear. He would. It wasn't his character. Again, it was a movie moment. I don't think the film is clear what it's doing at this point. I think it is literally in your face because they zoom in on the guy's face to make the point and they use this device of the shading, which isn't otherwise throughout the film. To make a comparison point with a, with a story that doesn't better, Les Miserables, the Victor Hugo adaptations, the equivalent would have been if it ended on the fight following the barricade between Javert and Jean Valjean, whereas we otherwise see Javert's beautiful soliloquy and Jean Valjean's reflection, which I think drives the point home of Hugo's novel much better. To be fair, this is a much more contained small-scale narrative than Les Miserables. I feel like an open ending would be a cop-out in that narrative in a way that, for me, it wasn't so much here. Shall we talk about I'm Thinking of Ending Things? Yes. Yes. I thought it was a neat, but again, clever device how, yeah, it comes back more in how he gives the same speech that John Nash gives at the end of A Beautiful Mind. But the other Ugh. shorthand of all, all those things on the shelf end up coming into it. The Pauline Kael book of criticism. Oh, that was Beautiful the Mind, that The David was... Foster Wallace thing. But I know the Paul and Kale, it was stupid, hey. But, but no, um, everything, and even the, the, the least important or like the least Oklahoma well-known song, song from Oklahoma, it's like, oh, was this in Oklahoma? Oh yeah, I guess it was, you know. And yeah, it's like, but, which janitor has this level of like, you know, cerebral Oh yeah, the fact that he's meant to be a janitor, yeah. But the beautiful mind thing, it's funny in the way, the other way that it works, where you see Beautiful Mind and you, you get it for like, oh, shorthand for some of the characters here who he talks to aren't real. Yeah. That was, again, clever. I get it. But, Very but clever, the thi- Mr. But the thing is, like, the thing yeah. is, apparently, once you get through it, none of that happened. The fact is, the, the meeting never happened. He's all contemplating it in his head. The fact that, that the whole farmhouse exercise, not they're happened. not driving. None of that happened. Nothing happened. So basically... Nothing matters. Think, nothing happened. Nothing happened. It all had happened in the head of this janitor guy. But it was obvious from the beginning that the janitor guy was the only real character. Yeah. Very early in the movie, I was like, oh, I get it. This is all happening in this guy's head who they keep cutting to for some reason. Otherwise... <laughs> It makes no sense. Though yeah. I did enjoy the beautiful, uh, very well choreographed and very well executed dance scenes. There were exceptional dancers and some of the production set design. I think I had given up on the film at that point. So I was like, I, I thought I it's two, kind of cool that this it. is happening. It's kind of cool. I'm getting some enjoyment out of it, but I'm not as into it as if the movie hadn't spent two hours up to this point. <laughs> you know, it was, I was done with it. Uh, I, 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 I'd give Even it was good. The film, film in the sense that it didn't excite me as a film medium. So I think, you know, I'd given up on the yeah. film as a film. 
I still like the ideas that are floating around, but I was just thinking, how could this be better done on a stage or how could this be better done as a monologue or like, you know, at separate- As a novel, right? Wouldn't the book yeah, but... of this like have been better than, like the novelization of the film adaptation have been better than- Absolutely. And the, and the te- soliloquies would have worked much more. Mm-hmm. He's technically- Because these elements are not in the book that we're mostly yeah. talking about. Well, he's written this kind of a book just recently called Ant Kind, which is 700 pages of just this. So technically, Charlie Kaufman's already done that. I don't I think know why guy... he's to make a film again. I know it's a cliche of Charlie Kaufman, and of course it's true because he wrote adaptation about himself, but I think he very easily crosses a threshold of self-indulgence. Which... Massively so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And... I mean, there's no threshold. He's only self And it's fine, it's entertaining, but it's not always entertaining. No, it's not. It definitely gets way too far up itself here. Also, like, I don't yeah, think, I, this is my most controversial part about Charlie Kaufman. He thinks he understands depression, but he makes it so surreal. He understands his own depression. He doesn't yes. necessarily communicate it well artistically. Yes. I feel like making it so cerebral almost takes away from the impact of how you can communicate what depression does to people. The problem with a lot of works about depression by artists who've struggled with depression is that they make a depressed movie. And that's not necessarily the best way. To yeah, it's not a movie about depression. depression. Yeah. You need to have these light tones. This film almost has no light tones and near the beginning characters talk about Oh, life's so hopeless. Uh, just check out. If you want me to get upset about the state of depression, you need to create contrast because without the, that absence, you don't feel the lack. It's hard to ask the audience to get on board with that kind of like sad stack over emoting. And I see it all in Lars von Trier's, though he, he's a bit better at it, and some of his recent movies. I see it in this. What other like depressed movies? There's no, no hope in life. Have there been? I, I, can, I can't go past Lars von Trier and Sagat, who I'm very far from a fan of. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just, a, an just approach generally. that is so heavy handed. But you're right. I think you've hit the nail and distinction on the head. It's a depressed movie rather than a movie about depression. And those are two very different yeah. things. It's not yeah. trying to communicate how it feels to be depressed. It is just showing this is. This is literally the movie is depressed. Like yeah. everything and feels depressed in the movie, which is not fun to watch. And the or character even... articulates what depression is near the beginning. You know, when she's like, "That's why humans made hope." I'm like, just shut up. <laughs> yeah, I have sympathy for people who really do struggle I, uh, with feelings. Just I know, not but, the way it's communicated. But, but the thing, but the thing is, they don't they don't talk like that. That is the thing. No, that's it, exactly it, right. It, Especially if they're a janitor, I like. It's such a, I'm not here to cast, this isn't a classist thing about janitors, right? This is just a thing of like, the world of this film and the influences are so New York intellectual. Like the Pauline Kael, Gina Rowland stuff. How many janitors are that into one other influence? I'm sure there are some, but how many of them are also really into quantum physics or is that just another clever element that's about like oh quantum physics things can be multiple things at the same time it is exactly that chris uh, you're, you're, just all, you're, yeah. you're overthinking things which is what this movie does i'm overthinking of ending things yeah well the film did and it went on way too long way too long so... this movie would have been better and had like a twilight zone type energy if it were like 90 minutes for Bloomhouse. Mm-hmm. 80, 80, 80 minutes for Bloomhouse. Bloomhouse producer. Bloomhouse whip it, cracking the whip on Charlie Kaufman. Yeah. And you're like, too pretentious. No, no, I'm ending <laughs> okay, things. Right. That's how we're doing this film. Yeah, Bloomhouse, so, Jason Bloom could say, Kaufman, I'm thinking of ending things. Here's your notes on yeah. the last 20 minutes. And then he'd say, just, just make that Charlie Kaufman's face. Ex- expand that, stretch that 20 minutes out. That yeah, was really yeah, good. Yeah. But it actually would have improved the film to have a strong artistic collaborator. I think Kaufman is too self-indulgent. I think he has moments of brilliance. There's clever, funny, interesting, weird moments in the dinner table scene, for example. And there's the interesting visual moment near the end. There's good stuff. He just needs someone to channel that stuff. It makes you realize how hands-on Gondry and Spike Jones have been as collaborators, clearly. So that is, I'm thinking of ending things. It is streaming now. Les Miserables is screening at Ritz, Dendi Palace Cinemas. Catch out the City Underground Film Festival, Queer Screen, the Geelong International Film Festival, Kino City next Monday, and Live online and on Insta and Facebook. Let us know what you want us to fight about. Um, we can do some more festival coverage, movies, whatever you'd like. What is the subject? Hit us up, twitter.com slash filmfightclubau or facebook.com slash filmfightclub. 
Before I leave, I just remembered something. Shout-outs to Yuri Menzel, director of Closely Watched Trains, one of the classics of Czech New Wave cinema. Actually, it holds up really well. Go watch that. I've only seen one other movie from him. I served the King of England. I reckon that was the last time a Czech movie was released in cinemas in Australia, like 15 years ago. Anyway, the Czech and Slovak Film Festival is one of the last to actually screen in person in Australia. Yeah, what did you say? What were you say, Brett? This was based on the book, right, from Bohemian Herbal, the Czech writer? Yes. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Uh, and Yuri Menzel well. directed it as a senior citizen, basically. It's good. It's good. Yeah. Anyway, um, but especially of his Watch Closely Watch Trains. Great movie. Won the foreign language film Oscar, unlike Portrait of a Lady on Fire. <laughs> ouch! Ouch! What a note to end on. Close okay. bobs. So, yeah. So we'll, we'll, always, we'll always come back to Portrait. <laughs> Have a good night. Enjoy movies, and we'll catch you soon. Sweet. Stay, stay safe. Have a good night, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Even if it's day. <laughs>